This is uh, it's great to be this morning. This is probably the uh, nervous I've ever been whilst preaching. I have this big drop behind me. Um, if anyone actually knows me well enough, like uh, my wife says, you know, you must you must preach up there, you must preach up there, because apparently no one's actually fallen in here so far, like in all the years people spin here. But you know, there's always a first time for everything, and knowing my luck, it'll be me. So I'll probably be gripping this most of the time. So we're following on this morning from our, uh, just give a brief view, I'm sure we're all used to these introductions where we talk about what we've been saying, but just for visitors and just to kind of refresh our memories. We've been following the story of the Old Testament to the New Testament and how Jesus has been revealed through the Old and to the New, and we've recently just finished the Old and we've just come into the New, and here we're coming into uh, some ways we actually get to get some, into some dialogue with, with Jesus. And uh, that's, that's kind of our main focus this morning. And this morning we're going to be focusing on uh, the spirits and the law. And we're going to be looking at the, probably one of the most um, popular and well-known uh, dialogues of Jesus, and that is on the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is such a vast thing to cover. So we're going to be focusing on something in particular. Um, uh, yeah, we're going to be focusing on something actually in particular, the verses. But before we get to that, let's just take a look at it as a whole. So we've been looking at the whole concept of the kingdom of God and how it's been revealed. And the kingdom of God is the main focus of the Gospel of Matthew. So it's no surprise that it's also the main focus on the Sermon on the Mount. So if we can move on to the next slide. Or if, if you can. Oh, a slide. <laughs> Sorry. It's uh, all right. That's it. Next one. Brilliant. You can go to the next one. That's it. So we can uh, separate it uh, into three different parts. Uh, the people of the kingdom, uh, the law of the kingdom, and the challenge of the kingdom. Um, this is just a way, there's several different ways we can look at the Sermon on the Mount. This is just one of the ways we can uh, take it to pieces, if you like, and try and understand it a bit better. So we're going to be focusing predominantly this morning on uh, the law of the kingdom. But before we get there... I think it's worth, um, I always like to sort of set the scene. I'm a painter, so I like to, so before I paint, I do like um, an undercoat first before we go on. Does anyone know when they does any of the painters in the place? Yeah, you do like an underpainting and then you build on top. So I kind of want to set the scene first because I think that's good for us today. Because often when we read the Gospels, even if we've been Christians for ages, we read about the Pharisees and we read about these different people that automatically come onto the scene. But we don't actually necessarily know where they came from. And I think that's actually important for us this morning. So I just want to sort of set the scene this morning to help us with our uh, time. So during the, old, the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, obviously it's, uh, it was a silence of prophetic word for 400 years, but there's actually been a lot happening within that time uh, in terms of getting taken over by different kingdoms and all these different things like that. And Israel faced a dilemma. They faced a dilemma which was... The dilemma of Israel. And basically, this, in their eyes, this is how they were thinking. The dilemma of Israel was, was the contradiction between God's promise and Israel's experience. So in other words, they were, had this idea, they had all these promises that were given through the prophets, all these different concepts. They were meant to believe in that there was going to be a new kingdom and a new Messiah, and it was all meant to come in, and the land of Canaan was their promised land, and it was all meant to be great. But they'd been in exile for so many years, and then they'd been taken over by so many different countries, and this was their dilemma. So, they had, so what did they do? Well, in response, several different schools of thought actually came from this. And you can, this is where we get the idea of the Pharisees. And you can actually include the Sadducees, but we're not going to go into that this morning. 
So the Pharisees came out of this idea, what, what is the answer to the dilemma? Well, the answer to the dilemma must be that we must keep the law. The answer to the dilemma must be, you know, we haven't been keeping the law properly. We must, in order to bring in the kingdom of God faster, in order to bring in the Messiah, and all this, all this different types of thing, we must be keeping the law. So consequently, they added to the law. So they added, so they added to the written law, they made the oral law, and they made several different, all these rules and regulations around it in order to keep it. Because they sought that a hunger and a thirst of righteousness in the, in the form of works was actually going to bring in the kingdom of God quicker. So that's why the Pharisees came in. And the Pharisees in the time of Jesus uh, and the scribes were the people in the synagogues teaching the uh, people of Israel. And uh, the people of Israel relied on the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes uh, to, un- to understand their scriptures because they lost the, uh, the language of Hebrew when it was written. So they relied on these people to tell them the um, essence of what they believed. So the Pharisees and the scribes had a major importance it's into the lives of Israel and the Jews during the time of Jesus. I hope that makes sense. But so that kind of sets the scene for this morning. So we enter, so enter Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene, and Jesus, if you read before the book, before the uh, fifth chapter, Jesus did many great things within uh, within the area of Canaan and all the different places there. And and his, um, he, but he didn't actually show his. Uh, his approach towards the law. You can't actually find out what his thoughts were, what his perceptions were. And this is what the Jews at the time were really interested in seeing about this Messiah figure, possible Messiah figure. What's his approach to the law? What's his beliefs about the law? Because that was obviously central to them. And that brings us to our text this morning. So if we can have the next slide. Yeah. So this is our main bulk this morning we're going to be sort of going into. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And this is actually one of the biggest statements. You know, there's, there's a lot of great statements in scripture, obviously. But this is actually one of the biggest statements Jesus could actually make at that time. Every, he is, he's saying, I've not come to abolish it, I've come to fulfil it. And this is everything that the Jews have been waiting for this point. How is he going to fulfil it? How is he fulfilling the law? How is he fulfilling the prophets? Well, let's just like look into it in a few different parts. Let's look at it first, what we mean when we says he's fulfilled the, fulfilling the law. <coughs> we look at the law of God, and it can be placed into like three different parts. We're going to be focusing on two parts this morning. It can be uh, taken into the ceremonial. Go to the next slide. Ceremonial law and the moral law. So the ceremonial law was the way God wanted His ancient people to worship, and the moral law was the Ten Commandments, etc., etc. So we're going to just look into these, what these things are and what these things symbolise. So first of all, the ceremonial law. So the ceremonial law was the uh, whole idea of sacrifice and offerings and how they appeased God's uh, wrath and his anger but also his justice and the need for sin to be punished and that's why we had to have, obviously there was the whole concept of having uh, different offerings and sacrifices and Jesus as we know is, was the perfect sacrifice. And if we read in the Old Testament Jeremiah was talking about there'll be a time where it all points towards a new covenant, a new time where someone will come, the Messiah will come. And in, this is taken from uh, Hebrews. 
where the writer of Hebrews is basically building his case for Christ. He's building his case saying, you know, Christ is the answer. Everything that was spoken of in the Old Testament resembles and points towards Christ. So let's read it. So it says, And the Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the co- <coughs> covenant, I meant to say, that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Amen. Yeah, amen. So Jesus came, to, and when he came, and when he offered his life as a sacrifice, as we all know, and when we believe in it, this is, what we, this is effectively what we're saying. He's the answer to this ceremonial law that was requested. And Charles Spurgeon put it really well. He said, uh, there's two words that should be included in each Christian's vocabulary in, uh, for, um, in terms of theology. And it is uh, satisfaction and substitute. So Jesus, in other words, Jesus is our substitute because he takes our place. He's our substitute because he took the sin on himself in our place and by believing in him we have eternal life. But it's also the satisfaction. What does that mean? Well, satisfaction means that nothing could possibly come close to actually satisfying the, the, the demand that God requires. You know, not, not the blood of goats, not the blood of animals could actually appease the whole justice issue with God. And that is what we see. Um, we've got this verse here. For the sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we move on to the next slide. It says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So just as Abraham, it was accredited to him, righteousness was accredited to him, for, uh, for uh, faith by faith by faith in Jesus, it, we also credit to have righteousness, and this is also the whole idea of uh, imputed righteousness. Then we become Christians and we confess our lives to God and we become uh, and we believe that He is the Son of God, and everything that we've just been saying. When God looks at us, He, we, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So let's move on to the moral law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, and he also fulfilled the moral, ceremonial part of the law, which I should say rather. And he also fulfilled the moral part of the law by loving God and by loving others. <coughs> and the thing that's really important for us today as we, as we are Christians, you know, by, by believing in Jesus, yes, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And often we have this kind of battle between, well, what's our relationship to the law now? You know, is the law still exists? And Paul says, well, of course, the, law, the moral law still exists. God's standards still exist. But we can't, we can't attain it by our own strength, but only by believing in Jesus. 
And I really like the way uh, a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. You see, when we say about what was the point of the law, the point of the law was many different things. Part of it was that there would be a kingdom of priests. That was God's desire. And why was there a kingdom of priests? Well, because the priests were the people who would come and enter into God's presence and would actually kind of experience his glory and his presence more so than anybody else. And he requires of us also. And my Lloyd-Jones says... Um, Holiness brings holiness means being righteous, and being righteous means keeping the law. What's the relationship to grace? What is grace? It is a marvellous gift of God, which having delivered man from the curse of law, enables him to keep it and to be righteous as Christ was righteous, for he kept the law perfectly. See, we're not under the law anymore. We're covered by grace but we're still called to be living holy and righteous lives. And as we go on to see, that was the kind of the main message of the Sermon on the Mount. It's meant to be increasing our spiritual character. If we go to the next, uh, the next slide, it shows a, a, you know, a really good verse to explain it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live a life controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. A people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Is that us this morning? Are we zealous for good works? Are we zealous... Do we take God's grace for granted? I think sometimes we do. I think sometimes we can look at ourselves and we can be like, God will forgive me and like we're stuck in this sort of... Maybe there's a particular sin that we're stuck in or that you can't get out of. And we rely too much on grace, which is, don't get me wrong, grace is amazing, but there are still God's standards that we're meant to be living by. But it's only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we can actually achieve these things. So why is this the biggest statement that Jesus could probably make? The law and the prophets. Well, the law, kind of we've spoken about, kind of refers back to uh, the Torah, if you like, the first few books, the first five books of the Bible, um, but the, um, the prophets, if you like, kind of refers to everything else. So basically he's saying everything in the Old Testament points to me. Everything in the Old Testament I have fulfilled. Not only the, not only the ceremonial law and all that kind of aspects that we've just been discussing, not only these different things, but also everything that was spoken about by the prophets in terms of not just the whole idea about being a Messiah, but the whole idea about bringing judgment, the whole idea about bringing peace, the whole idea about everything that is encompassed within the prophets we've been discussing throughout our studies uh, and our, and our um, time throughout since January. Everything is encompassed in Christ. And that is such an amazing statement for him to make at this time for these people because they're like, wow, this is, we've been waiting for this for so long. And yet we've been told that you know, the return of this king, the return of this Messiah, is actually going to be something that is going to bring us out of oppression from the Roman Empire. And it's going to be something military. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. The, spirit, the, 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 realm, the, uh, the kingdom of God is predominantly spiritual, not physical. And he, and he has fulfilled every aspect of it. I think it's quite difficult sometimes to uh, put ourselves in their position, isn't it? Because it's great to, to stand up here and to say this. But as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, you know, these words, 
are so amazing that Christ is saying. And often we try to take the Old Testament away from the New. And Jesus is declaring this moment, you can't do that. few verses on he then goes on to say for I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven this is another quite a crazy statement to make <clears throat> so first of all we've learned that he, is, he has fulfilled it he hasn't done away with it he's fulfilled the, the law and the prophets and now we're coming to a point where he's saying you can't even enter it. You can't even enter heaven until, you're, until you exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, as time we said at the beginning, were the teachers of the law. And a lot of us, probably Christians here, probably know this already. But let's just remind ourselves. You know, this would have been an amazing statement to say to these Jews at this time. Why? Because at this time, they would be viewing these uh, Pharisees in such high regard that they can never even be able to attain their righteousness, let alone the righteousness above them. But then Jesus, so in order for Jesus to really best explain this, he kind of then goes on to make a few more points, um, which we're not going to cover completely, but we're just going to just look at this, uh, some of the common uh, parts of them. So from talking about uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus then goes on to talk about why their their self-righteousness is not capable of entering into the kingdom of heaven. And he does this by a series of statements. (coughs) And he refers back to, For I, you have heard that the law, you have heard this, blah, 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 about uh, that you will go the extra mile. And there's a pattern that Jesus uses in that. And uh, and within that section he says, uh, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. If you read the next few verses on for the chapters, you have heard <coughs> so and so, but I tell you. Now we've got to understand what, it says, what, understand what he means when he says, for you have heard. When he says you have heard, he's saying, you know, you have heard it from the Pharisees, in other words. You have heard it from the scribes, that it was said, this is the way you are meant to do things, but I tell you. We've got to understand that Jesus isn't correcting the law or correcting things he's correcting the misinterpretation of the law that was given by the Pharisees and the scribes he's given the real interpretation and we can find four principles that he's highlighting throughout these verses first one it is the spirit of the law that matters primarily not just the letter Later on, in somewhere, uh, another, another letter, Paul uses the words, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The Pharisees have been so consumed with trying to bring in the kingdom of God and live a life that is righteous through works, that they've lost the whole idea of the spirit, the real meaning behind it. But Jesus kind of goes a bit a step further, doesn't he? He says, you have heard, <coughs> do not murder, but I say, even if you think badly of someone, that's considered murder. You've heard, don't commit sexual adultery, 
Well, I say, if you look at another woman or a man with lust, that's adultery. I mean, what a crazy thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, if we read the words of the Bible, and if we read the Sermon on the Mount, and it doesn't challenge us, then I'd probably say we're not reading it correctly. We need to be challenged. And Jesus is here saying, you can't just abide by the outward things. You can't just abide by uh, the, the, uh, the lesser of it. You're missing the, uh, the whole spirit of it. The second point, obedience to the law must not be thought of in terms of actions only. This kind of carries on from the... Um, what I just said. The motives and desires are equally important. Now we, we know this, don't we? A lot of us know this. This is the crazy thing. I've been a Christian for um, since I was 11, so quite a few years. <laughs> um, you know, and we probably brought up knowing this. I'm probably saying things, you're saying, yeah, I, I, I wonder what we're having for coffee, I wonder if there's any biscuits with this. I know what Jack's talking about. But the thing is, the Bible and the Word of God is meant to remind us again and again. What thoughts have we had? You know, like, I was speaking to a friend, a good friend of mine, and she's worried because she says, you know, like, you know, you can kind of sound like it's condemning us. And I was like, yes. I guess it could sound like if I'm saying it wrong, <laughs> but I'm trying to put it right. The Bible doesn't condemn us. At all. In that sense, I've got my story straight here. The Bible doesn't condemn that. It, what it's saying is, you are meant to examine yourself before you go to bed, if you like. Now, before you go to bed at night, for a week, I challenge you, just so you know, God, instead of saying, have I committed adultery... Uh, have I looked at someone in a, in a specific way? Have I had horrible thoughts about someone? And I think before, more often than not, we'd all be, find ourselves guilty. And this is what Jesus is saying in the sense of the sermon that there is a higher way. The higher way of the Spirit isn't meant to make life as a Christian like attainable by our own ways. It can only be attained by having the Spirit in us. The third point, the, the, the love aspect of the law. I didn't know how to sort of write this as a point, so I kind of came up with this love aspect. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> See, they missed the point of the law um, because they misinterpreted it. But everything that we read about the law is negative, isn't it? Everything we read about the Pharisees' view of the law is negative. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And it's all thought about as negativity. But actually, the law, that when God gave the law to his people, it was out of love. The law was sweet on their lips. The law was given to them, not to say, you know, because this is how you become a Christian. It was saying, God, God had already called them out of Egypt and brought them out of Egypt and saved them. And he gave them the law to say, this is how you are my people. Now you are, now you are my people. This is how you are to react. This is how you are to act. This is how you conduct yourself. This is how you are to be separate from the rest of the world. It was good for them. It wasn't meant to be a set of rules and regulations that was to condemn and to restrict them. And yet, how many times as Christians today do we kind of think that being a Christian means that we're restricted in ways in life? Oh, I can't do that. I can't watch that movie. I can't do this. I'm not going to go into that area so much. But you get my point. How often do we think, you know, that living a life as a Christian is, 
Yeah, I know it's not easy, and I know there's bits of it that are that are difficult. But actually, like, it's the best thing, isn't it? Like John's like, you know, you're getting baptized, and it's awesome, and it's so great that you know you made this commitment to follow God, and it's like being a Christian is, yeah, we're not promised it's going to be easy, but it's the best blessing that they could ever be. It's the realization that God is here, God is real. This person I've been reading about in this word is not just a name on a page; it's a living person. He lived and breathed on this earth, and his message is true for me. I just find that astounding. And I'm going to say, in other words, the law wasn't intended to keep us in a state of obedience to oppressive rules, but to pronounce our spirit, but to promote our spiritual character. In other words, his commandments are not grievous. If we think Christ's teaching is something narrow and restrictive, it means we have not understood it. That's what it means. If you think Christ's teaching is narrow and restrictive, then I'll say you haven't understood it. Because the law was given, yes, and there are, there are certain aspects of our rules, but it was never meant to be oppressive. And the Pharisees misunderstood this. And sometimes we as Christians today can misunderstand it. And sometimes people look at us as Christians and think, oh, being a Christian means you have to do this and you have to do that. And yeah, there are certain things that we have to do because we are different. And we're meant to be different. That's why it was given. But it's meant to increase our spiritual character in order for us to grow. Are we growing as Christians? Are we growing in our faith? Are we growing in our knowledge of God? Are we growing in our love of God? Are you the same now as you were last year? I did a funny thing once. I wrote uh, a letter to myself. <coughs> yeah, that's, uh, <coughs> I'll finish that sentence. And I put it in a place. I wrote something down like I wanted to achieve or what's my relationship with God, what it was. And I sealed it and I put it in an uh, envelope and I put it somewhere in my house. And I was meant to open it the next year, but I didn't because I totally forgot. Um, but then the year after, I was moved house and Candice and I were looking at things and I saw this envelope and, uh, and I opened it. And it was explained, and it was saying a prayer that I gave to God about me, about my life. And you know what? I would love to say that I had grown. I would love to say that I was so much more closer to God. But in reality, I wasn't. And that kind of empowered me and made me think, you know what? I want to be different this time next year than I am now. I want to be closer to God next year than I am now, next week. I want to know God better. And that should be our aim. And that was the aim of the Lord, to increase our character and increase our love for God. Next point. Our relationship to God. Jesus' principle was, Jesus was facing on their relationship to God. This all boils down to it, really, isn't it? What is our relationship to God? Are we pleasing him? Like I said, do we know him better? It's kind of repeating what I've already said. So Jesus confronts these issues of the Pharisees, their teaching, and he says, you know, you have heard it said, but I say. You have heard it said that there's different ways of living, but this is my way. This is the right interpretation of the law. There is a higher way. Can you do it? No, you can't. Can you go a day without doing this, without breaking the law? No, you can't. But we have, by the grace of God, by believing in Jesus, by making steps, by believing him, getting baptised, doing things like this, we come to him. And he rewards us with this response. 
the rest of the section that we've been talking about this uh, the morning about the law of God goes on to talk about tithes and uh, and how to pray because naturally like if if our inward spirit is being changed and it should have an outward expression of it <laughs> and um it should have an outward expression. And often we look at the Pharisees, and I don't know if you've ever heard the term, well, that one person's very, uh, acting like a Pharisee. I don't know if you've ever heard that saying. And what do we mean by that? Well, I've heard this story, and I thought I'd share it, because I think it's quite fun. And it kind of makes the point in, light, in a light-hearted manner. So here it is. <coughs> a teacher in a public school was teaching her third-grade students about mammals in the sea. She mentions that the whale is a large animal living in the sea. Even though it is one of the largest sea creatures, it has a very narrow throat. And so it cannot swallow an adult human being. A girl in the class spoke up, but it swallowed Jonah, miss. No, the teacher said, it cannot swallow an adult human being. Because as I said, even though it is a large animal, it has a very narrow throat. And so it cannot swallow even an adult human being, or even a small one. The girl persisted. When I go to heaven, I will ask Jonah. <laughs> well, if Jonah, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? What if he's in hell? The teacher asked. The girl responded, well, then you ask him. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a light-hearted thing, isn't it? But we, um, we laugh because we've, uh, we made the sort of, um, we made this judgment saying, you know, the girl's obviously going to heaven and, 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 the, uh, and the teacher's going to hell. Um, but that was kind of like, in a light-hearted way, we can kind of reflect that back to the Pharisees and say, you know, they, they were, um, they made of judgments on someone based on their own assumed position. Their own just, so they based the judgment on somebody saying, oh, this, I'm better than this person and therefore they're, they're, I'm going to go to heaven they're not gonna go to, and they're going to go to hell. And often, I'm just going to come into close, we talk about Pharisees and we speak about Pharisees and we say, oh, that's something different, I would never act like that. But actually, when we look at ourselves, you know, we, we do act very much like them at times, don't we? What do I mean by that? <clears throat> well, I mean that sometimes we look for the faults in other people. And ourselves. We're quite quick to judge somebody else without looking at our, our own state. We're quite quick to point the blame at somebody else without looking at ourselves. And we resemble different aspects of it. And we must be careful, Jesus, don't do that. Don't put yourself on show when you pray. Pray in your, in your room. Does that mean we can't pray in church? No, of course it doesn't. You can't miss the actual principle Jesus preaches. Don't, you know, don't get too consumed up in, the, in like we say, and don't get consumed up in the lesser. Understand the actual principles that he's actually trying to say. And when I was doing this, you know, there's uh, the whole idea when I was, when I was uh, talking to my friends, part of my Moreland's uh, degree is that I have to, um, I've got to be friends with non-Christians. So, <laughs> which is great. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. I want to make clear that's actually like I, I want to have be friends with non-Christians. I want to make clear, but yeah. Anyway, 
I have to be, I have to kind of prove that my, I have to kind of show that I've been working with people of different beliefs and different values and different things like that. And I've got some great friends from my work when I worked as a support worker and they were, and they say, you know, Christians are hypocrites. And because see, you say one thing but you do another. And I said, like, well, you know, I can, I understand where you're coming from, but I think you've got a wrong, I think you've got a misconception of what uh, hypocrisy is, if I'm honest. So you may, there's, you may like uh, have a, you may not, you may disagree with me with this, but when I read the Sermon on the Mountain, I hear about Jesus talking about hypocrisy and the hypocrites of the, them. They were, they were hypocrites because they were making judgments of other people and not admitting their own faults themselves. So in other words. A hypocritical Christian will be someone to say, I have it all sorted, and you don't. Come to be, come to know Christ, um, like, and be like me, because I am perfect. That would be a hypocritical Christian. But an actual Christian should be a person who says, you know what, I don't have it sorted. You know, when, when John, when you go a bit baptized and you come up, you know, life isn't going to be like, you know, you're not going to be this magic <laughs> person all of a sudden, and things aren't going to be like, in all that way, but you know, we have to understand what we're really saying here, don't we? That if we were going to be hypocrites, we would say, I am perfect, but we don't admit our own spiritual faults. But the Christian may say, you know, I am not perfect. I'm not perfect. I admit I'm not perfect. I admit there's different faults. However, I believe that I have an advocate in Jesus Christ who can forgive me and bring me back. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see the sin that is covering me, but he sees the righteousness of Christ that, that covers me. To Christians, we're not hypocrites. I want to put that out there anyway. Think of it what you may. At least we shouldn't be. So as I close this morning, a few questions and a few sort of things to sort of highlight from the text. The main point of this morning was to talk about the spirit and the law. The Pharisees and the scribes have missed the actual essence behind the scripture, behind the law. Let's not do the same. When we read our Bibles, when we read our word, let's see Jesus and let's see what he is saying. Let's see the principles that he sets forth for us. And let's not be judgmental towards others. When we go down to bed at night, you know, you put your head down. It's easy to think of the things that we've done wrong. And it's not that we condemn ourselves and we think, oh no, I'm such a bad person, woe is me, and I just wallow in self-pity. Because it's meant to bring us back to God. So, that's, you know, I just challenge you. When you go to bed at night and you think about things, say, you know what, God, I'm sorry that I've acted this way. Please make me more like you. Please sanctify me day by day that I would become a lover of godliness and a hater of godlessness. And most of all, let's just be come and, and let's just resemble Jesus and point to him always in our lives. And, and, and realise that Jesus is a fulfilment of the Old Testament. He's a fulfilment. Everything points towards him, as we've been reiterating over the the weeks. Everything points towards the beauty and the majesty that is in the name of Jesus. Everything points towards him. And Jesus stands here in these Jews at this time, and he says, look at me. You want to know what holiness is? Look at me. 
You want to know what it is to be a follower of God? Look at me. Let's keep our eyes focused on Jesus so that we would, day by day, turn into the likeness of him, resembling more of him and less of us, submitting ourselves to him, doing away with pride and being humble and let the spirit of God dwell in us that we may see God more. Let's just close our eyes and I'm just going to finish in prayer. Father God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you are the most incredible, amazing God. I thank you that your love for your people is a fierce, a wonderful, amazing love. I thank you that you care for us, that you love us, and that you desire the best for us. I thank you that we can grow in spiritual character. I thank you for challenging us. And I pray, Lord, that we would accept this challenge. We would accept the challenge to become more like you. And we would accept the challenge that your scripture gives. That we would be loving people, resembling you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord God, that we would just know your love upon us. And we would grow in spiritual character and love for one another. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus, that you fulfilled the words, you fulfilled the Old Testament, and that everything points to you. And that not only can we say that everything points to you there and then, but we can say with a reassurance that everything in the future points to you. Everything in the future, that we are predestined, that we are given a place in honour, that we are seated, Lord, we will be with you one day. We can rest assured on that. And I thank you, Lord God, I thank you for the assurance of the gospel. We just pray, Lord God, for us as a church and for people individually, Lord, that we would grow to know you better and resemble you better and to not be the same today as we were yesterday, but be growing in our faith and in our character, Lord. And we wouldn't just grow in faith, but the character would infect all our lives. It would diffuse out to every area. We thank you, this Lord Jesus, and we ask this in your precious name. Amen. We're going to take a fellowship break now. If there's anybody who wants to.